0: What does the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach his disciples? Here's the answer. The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Teaches his disciples to take their encouragement in prayer from God only. And in their prayers to praise him, ascribing kingdom, glory, power to him. And in testimony of their desire and assurance to be heard, to say, Amen. So question one, is this conclusion an original part of the prayer? And the short answer is probably not. In fact, almost certainly not. It's not in the earliest Greek manuscripts of Matthew. It is found occasionally in later copies. Whether it's viewed as part of the scripture or not depends on a person's approach to determining the text of the New Testament. The subject of whether this conclusion is a part of the Lord's Prayer or not is is not really a matter between um, liberal and conservative or believer and unbeliever, although that plays some role in this, but rather how we are to take the thousands of copies of the scriptures, the Latin, the Greek, the other documents, and put them all together into one text. Now the Puritans who wrote our catechism Uh, didn't doubt that uh, this was part of the Bible, part of the prayer. And so in the 1640s, this question in the Westminster Catechism was included and brought over into the Baptist one. But their Greek editions of Scripture and their early English translations of it were based on a relatively small set of Greek manuscripts. Uh, By some counts, only about 17. Well, we have hundreds and thousands of them today and none of them particularly old. So depending on your Bible translation, this phrase may or may not be there. In the Greek copy of the received text on which the King James Version is based on, it is of course included without any comment or note. In the United Bible Society text, it's completely left out, and the fact that it's left out is noted with a footnote, and the removal is given the rating of an A meaning that uh, the scholars involved consider it almost certain that this phrase doesn't belong in the text. English Bibles show a variety of similar diversity. In the NIV, the conclusion is left out, but it's footnoted at the bottom. In the New American Standard, at least the original one, it's included in the text, but in brackets, meaning that it's disputed, and there's a note that says it's missing in the earliest manuscripts. The New King James has it, but includes a note. Very conservative scholar D. Edmund Hebert sums things up this way. This doxology is lacking in the leading manuscripts and is generally regarded as a scribal addition derived from ancient liturgical usage. In other words, this was said in church, in worship, and it made its way back into the Bible centuries later. William Hendrickson, also a very conservative scholar, notes, quote, a considerable lack of manuscript support for the retention or insertion of the words in question. And of course, if we compare scripture with scripture and we go over to Luke to see his version of the Lord's Prayer, it is not there. Well, so that brings up the question, if this is probably not an an original part of the prayer the Lord taught the disciples to pray, why are we studying it? So question two, is it worthwhile then to study? And this is one of those places where I think we want to be calm and considerate considerate and thoughtful. Perhaps not throw the baby out with the bathwater, as the old perverse saying is. And I want to answer this second question this way. Is it worthwhile then to study? Yes, it is. Because these words express a scriptural truth. And I'm going to um, demonstrate that from scripture uh, over and over and over again in the next few moments. All right? So we will see what the truth is in the rest of the lesson. Now, we may not regard these words, and I don't, and when I pray them at home or publicly, I do not generally include them. I will every so occasionally, but but rarely. Um, I don't regard them as part of the disciples' prayer, but they convey a truth we often find sometimes in identical or very similar words throughout the Bible and in prayers in particular so let's see that if for example we were to turn to first chronicles 29 first chronicles 29 verses 10 to 13 this is david's public worship prayer Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come for you, and you rule over all in your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. There it is. The kingdom and the power and the glory in that prayer. Indeed, this addition to the prayer may well be rooted in this, or perhaps some of the other texts we will look at. This prayer... Ascribes God the kingdom and the power and the glory. Also in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 7 through 36, and we won't read the entire thing, but again, this is a, a public Old Testament. It's not a standard worship setting, but it is certainly a public assembly that includes the worship of God. And here David's song has similar things. God's kingdom, salvation, strength, glory, and praise from everlasting to everlasting. And how do the people respond at the end? Verse 36, then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Or Psalm 145, 10 to 13. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make it known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Now remember, all of the psalms are prayers, and all of the prayers are psalms in this book. So here is another example of God's greatness, glorious splendor, power, and all ascribed to God by his people forever and ever. 2 Timothy 4:18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. And then from his heart Paul says to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. There is salvation, power Kingdom, glory, forever, ever, Amen. Revelation one six, the doxology ends. To Him be glory and power, forever and ever, Amen. In Revelation four eleven, are you getting the idea? In Revelation four eleven, the living creatures and elders fall down before the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. How do they do that? By saying, "You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power." Also, Revelation 5 and Revelation 19 and other places. Clearly, this conclusion to the Lord's Prayer is scriptural in regard to its teaching and its language, even if it wasn't specifically given by Christ to these men. And it certainly follows the approved example of both Old and New Testament prayers. Now interestingly, history tells us that the church, the early church, used texts and thoughts like this in their prayers, and with this prayer in particular from very early times. An almost identical doxology to this ending one is found in the book called The Teaching, the didache or didache, an early book of instruction and in church order probably dating from between 75 to 125 it may well have been written before the new testament canon was completed it's from probably an area north of israel with syrian or jewish uh, Syri- syro-jewish uh, believers and this this manual of discipline um, explained among a number of things how to worship together. So they talk about how how to baptize and how to pray and how to do these different things. Well, in the prayer, it says that those who are baptized should pray the Lord's Prayer three times each day, and then they quote it. And in their version, so this is a very, very early version, It says, for yours is the power and the glory forever. Now, again, it's not identical to this. This isn't scripture. This is a man-made. This is not a perfect uh, teaching. Uh, There are mistakes in it. But they recognize that there's scriptural truth here, that God is the reason we pray. It's a part of worship. God is the reason. We pray, and he is the reason that we have any confidence that our prayers are heard and answered. So, is it worthwhile then to study? Yes, short answer, yes. And so now let's quickly do that, all right? What does this phrase teach us about reasoning with God in prayer? In summary, it teaches us this, that we may use holy arguments with him. You've heard this phrase before, that we can use holy arguments with God in prayer. The larger catechism says the Lord's Prayer teaches us to enforce our petitions with arguments. John Flavel goes further. He says that this conclusion justifies our pressing God with arguments and prevailing with him for audience. Does that sound like a sermon you might have heard a couple of months ago from this platform, not by me? Right? Wrestling with God in prayer and overcoming Him. Yeah, that's exactly what this is about. This is wrestling with God verbally in prayer. Why do these men say this? Because the conclusion begins with the word for. We ask all of these things because. Father, answer our petitions because to you belongs. Because of these reasons that I'm about to remind you of. Here are the arguments why you should hear us and give us what we ask for. In this case, the reasons given are three. His authority, his ability, his ascendancy. If you like three A's, there they are. Authority, ability, ascendancy these are why we want you to hear us these are why we want you to give us what we desire and holy men entreated God in this manner in the past Daniel in Daniel 9 after confessing Israel's sin and acknowledging God's righteous judgment on them asks him to turn his wrath away and then in verse 17 he asks God to hear him and And he gives him reasons. And I apologize for not being quite so ready. Daniel 9, 17 to 19. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas of mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary. Which is desolate? Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. You see. Because of his authority, because of his ascendancy, he was called upon, he was calling upon God to answer, to hear and to answer. He's arguing with God. This kind of prayer isn't just lawful because we're taught it in the Bible. It is useful. It's expedient. In 2 Chronicles 14.11, Chronicles It says this, Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you and in your name we have come against this vast army. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. What's he praying? He's praying, yours is the power. That's what he's praying. Yours is the power. Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 26 cries, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. There there are those themes again. Verse 12, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. We're not looking to ourselves. We're looking to you because you're the only one with might, with glory, the kingdom. You, You are God. And many more could be multiplied, but the point is clear. God is receptive to righteous reasons to answer prayer, especially when they involve his character and his glory. Appeal to God because he is eternally loving. Appeal to God because he is perfectly merciful. Appeal to God in the faces of his great might, his wisdom, and on and on the attributes of God can function in our prayers. God doesn't tell us those things about him so we can argue about them or put them in certain columns. He gives us those things so that we'll lay hold of him in prayer and in life and speak and live in his presence in light of who he is, not, not in light of who we are. So that's how we pray. So we reason with God in prayer by using holy Arguments. Question four: What does this conclusion teach us about our hopes in prayer? That they rest completely on God. Our hopes in prayer rest completely on God. You know, every once in a while, you'll you'll hear of a uh, an atheistic medical doctor who, when asked, uh, "Does you know do you believe in prayer?" He or she will say something like, "Oh, actually, I do." Because studies have shown that for many people, it's comforting, it's calming, it helps them heal. And so I don't believe that there's actually a God, and I don't believe that it's you know anything's functioning here. But I do believe that it's good self-therapy. It seems statistically to work. And so I believe in prayer. Well, our hopes in prayer are not based on tricking ourselves. They're not based on a lie that that God exists and hears us and we're his children and he's going to answer our prayers. No, our praying relies on the God who is and in his word has told us that he wants to hear our prayers and he delights to answer and he will always answer them in a way that's best for us. That's where our hope in prayer is. So this answer that they rest wholly on God affirms that we should find encouragement in prayer in God not in how often you do it not in how well your words sound not in even in how sincere you were and there's nothing wrong with any of those three things by themselves but there's no hope in any of that there's no power there's no might there's no glory in any of that all of that rests in God and in God alone and that's why we go to him We don't ask God to answer our desires because of our worth or talent or glory. What a useless, sinful, and sad exercise that would be. As Calvin rightly says, for if our prayers were to be commended to God by our worth, who would even dare mutter in his presence? Amen. Brothers, God tells us to come to him with great boldness to his throne and to ask for great things. How can we possibly hope that he will hear us? Or if we're thinking rightly, how dare we think that he will hear us? I mean, look at who is coming to ask. Us. Wicked dust. (laughs) And look at who, to whom we're asking. Yes, look to whom we're asking. So we don't have to mutter in fear. We can ask in bold confidence, in high hopes, even in the assurance that he absolutely hears us. In us there is no hope, but in God all things are possible. He possesses the right to intervene for us, and he has the strength, the might, to do it for his name's sake. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, prays for their spiritual strengthening and increase in the knowledge of God's love. Well, where did his confidence come from that this would be fulfilled? Verses 20 and 21 give the answer. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all ages forever and ever. Amen. That sounds like an expanded conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. Sounds like Paul knew his Old Testament. Sounds like he learned to pray from Daniel and David and those kings. And Yes, and we can learn to pray from these men, even if, in this particular case, perhaps these words were not spoken on that occasion from Christ to his apostles. How could Jude have had the daring... To think that men could in this life be kept from falling and be brought faultless to God's heaven. There are plenty of preachers who, especially on Mondays, say to themselves, do I really believe this? (laughs) Wow, because it sure doesn't feel like it sometimes. doesn't seem like God's... (sighs) Why could Jude... Be confident that believers could be kept from falling and even be brought to perfection before God's throne because his hopes found support in a God who, according to verse 24, is able. He has might. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty. Power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Wow, sounds like Jude learned to pray from Paul and all those same people. These men's hopes in prayer rested wholly on God and so must ours. Question five, what does it teach us about the content of prayer one of the things this teaches us is that it should include praise. Now, there is, and, and this is right, there are some folks who say every, everything we say to God in prayer is a request. And there's a sense in which that's right, because even when we bring praise to God and some of the other things that we don't immediately think directly are being requests, we're really coming to God and asking him to receive them. You know, we don't by ourselves have the right to bring them. And so we say in Jesus will you please receive this praise? From the wicked, he doesn't. From us, through Jesus, he does. But in the way we normally think about this, prayer should include praise. This conclusion to the Lord's Prayer doesn't only teach us to reason with God and to find encouragement in him, but also to praise him. We ought to actually credit God with having kingdom power and glory and we ought to extol him for it we come in prayer to a god who has eternal sovereignty omnipotency magnificent excellence how can we not mention these to him in praise shouldn't we celebrate in prayer as we do in song as we do in scripture reading as we do sometimes in the sermon the glories of our god This is why we try to always open our worship with adoration. Because it ought to make up a part of our corporate prayer life. I remind you of David's prayer that we read earlier, 1 Chronicles 29. Praise be to you, O Lord. God of our father Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Or Paul in 1 Timothy 1.18, to go to the other testament, exalts and adores God in these words, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, or perhaps the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is one of the many uses of a study of God's attributes. Not only to argue with him for things in prayer, but to praise him for those same things in prayer. Question six, and you all know the answer to this one. What does the word amen mean? So be it. Yes, indeed. Remember, it's a transliterated Hebrew word, not translated, whose root means to be reliable, sure, or true. So it could be translated, may it become, or so be it, or yes, I, with my whole heart, affirm this. It shows a longing for something to happen and a belief in the trustworthiness of the one to whom you are asking. And that leads us to the last question. Then how does amen function in prayer? Well, it shows our desire to be heard and our faith in God's dependability to answer, especially that. This shows that we actually believe that God will answer us. So amen is a longing and amen is a statement of trust. It says to ourselves, it says to those around us in the body and it says to God, we long for these things to come about that we ask for, that we are singing, that we just read about, that we just stated, that we just prayed. We long for these things to come about and we are utterly convinced that our heavenly Father can be relied upon for them. So amen is a bold request of faith and it's a quiet assurance that says yes I know he will and so it is the usual conclusion of prayers because it affirms our honest agreement with what we have just said and it states our confidence to God to answer us so amen is the cure or at least a reminder against sloppy mechanical or wandering prayers it says I really meant what I said father it says, I want these things enough to ask you for them and to now affirm that. It says, I'm relying only on you to answer. So the Lord's prayer in some is this Father, grant these six petitions for your sake and know that our ardent desires are real and that we have a firm confidence that you will bring them to pass. May God teach us how to pray in a way that reflects who he really is and who we really are.